quite funny. I did read this the last service. I'm not making this up as I go, at least this hour. Um, I'm on this network that helps plant churches, and um, we just planted one in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Anybody from Chattanooga? Nope? Okay. Um, <laughs> so they started on October the 10th, so it's been the 10th, 17th, 21st, 31st, so four weeks, fourth Sunday. Uh, the guy who's the preacher there is a dear friend of mine. We worked together for years, side by side in the same office, youth ministry days, in the toy department, as I call it, and church work. Um, so I texted him yesterday and said, how are things going, and are you ready for tomorrow, which is preacher talk for, got that, got that sermon ready? All right. He texts back, things are awesome, man, exclamation point. Sermon prep is taxing, but still fun. The 10th, the 17th, the 24th, four weeks, 31st. Wow, it's, it's still fun. And so uh, one of the things that we try to tell new preachers is, okay, that sermon that you put together, that you study for, that you write, that you struggle through, that you pray about, that sometimes you spend maybe a year thinking about, that you duct tape together and that you type it out and then rip that up and write things down, that thing that you walk up on stage and give on a Sunday, it happens next week too. <laughs> oh, oh, and then the week after that, and the week after, in fact, if the long, as long as you do this, it's going to keep hitting you every seven days. <laughs> so this guy's like, you know, it's still fun. So I'll keep you guys updated as to how, uh, how he's doing up there. All right, are you ready? I hope to get some ride-ons and cheers and woots, if you're into that, um, for this. Today is a cool day because today is the, f the, the beginning of our final series through all ten of the commandments that we started back in January. So today is the beginning of the final day, thank you very much, uh, of, the, of the last series in this series that, and for those of you who are new, we walked into 2010 and said, we are going to devote a year to all ten of the commandments, not just one week apiece, although we've done that for a couple of them, but we're going to give each one weeks and weeks and weeks of teaching, and so today's the end, today's the beginning of the end, and so I can't tell you how excited I am, and the cool thing is, um, this one's only two weeks, um, today and next week, because the 14th of November is, anyone? Beyond Sunday, uh, which is uh, the day we do this big offering, and all that money goes to mission work uh, in the city and around the world. Uh, last year, 50000 came in, and we have been giving it away ever since. And so we're doing that again. It'll uh, be our fourth or fifth year doing that on November the 14th. And we wanted to, we want to devote uh, the right attention to that day. So this one's only two weeks, and it is full of stuff. So uh, I'm going to begin... Uh, before we talk about the Tenth Commandment, I'm going to begin by reviewing the first nine. Are you ready? The first one says that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, God's speaking this to Israel post-slavery. They've just been freed. They've followed Moses into what will be a new life for them. And in fact, when the commandments are given, they're in transition. They're still kind of on the run, and they're not necessarily settled, so God uses this transitional moment, which is very wise, to teach. And he says to them, first thing, uh, you, as a people, shall have no other gods before me. So this command, the first thing God tells them is, live your life with me at the front. Live your life with me first. Now, one of the things we say in church work 
uh, or in church life, Christian life, if you're a Christian, we say this a lot, and I think the motives are genuine and pure, but it's the wrong phrase. We say things like, this year, um, I'm going to put God first in my life. Right? We say that. Like, I'm going to put God first in this and in this and in this and in this. The problem with that, theologically and from the Scripture's point of view, is that God is not something that you pick up and that you put Him where He belongs. Right? Because He's already where He belongs. And you can say it this way. God is already first. He's creator, sustainer, maker, controller of all things. I mean, He's God. So if you have to pick your God up and put him first, you might need to get another God. But God is always first. And so he begins saying to the Israelites, live with me at the front. Live knowing that I'm at the front. No other gods before me in your life, right? It kind of begins like a wedding, almost a contract between him and his people saying, look, here we are. We're starting this relationship. I want to know that you are not going to put anyone else between you and me. This is how the conversation begins between God and Israel, right? I want to know that there's no other lovers, there's no potential affair, there's no cheating, there's nothing that's more important than me, because I'm God. So don't put other little G gods in front of me. That's how the ten begin. Very, very important. Number two, very similar in some versions, they're grouped together, but you shall not make an idol now, the rest of the, the verse, uh, the command, has the word anything. Anything can be an idol. Don't take anything in all of creation, the, the command says, and make that into an idol, which means that idols are within our own power. We have the power to take anything, this, this phone, and it can become an idol. I worship it, I talk to it, I obey it, I respond to it, I sacrifice everything for this. I'll get to you in a moment. Because this is more, it's call, this is what an idol is. So what we did earlier in the year when we went through the idol series, we talked about how it's just so simple. You can take anything, money, career, clothes, body, relationships, etc., and turn those into idols. And the interesting thing about idols is that most of them are good things. Money is good. Money changes people's stories. Money buys clothes for the poor. Money pays your bills. But I can raise it to a level of divinity and I'll sacrifice everything for it, right? So God says, I'm first. Always have been first. Even if you live like I'm not first, I'm still first. It's very frustrating. And um, secondly, keep the path clear between you and me. So don't let anything else crowd the vision that you have of me. So like, I'm first, live that way, and keep things at bay that may get in the way. Understand? Number three, he says, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, the word Lord in this verse is all caps because it's the word Yahweh, and it's one of the many, many, many different names that God has. It's the most powerful name of God. It means the God who is, the God who was, the God who will be. It's like the self-existing verb of God, the name of God. But the Bible is full of all these different names of God, and each name is a descriptor of either who God is or something that he has done. And so you have names like provider, friend, lover, uh, protector, savior, etc. All these different names of God. Well, the one that he's most concerned with is this one. And don't misuse this name. Some versions say take in vain, which means to lower it to like this level of 
it's useless, it's empty of its meaning. That's what vanity means. Uh, but this really is the better descriptor. Don't misuse it. So don't, when you speak about me, don't misuse it. We always think it's just don't say this word and this word together, right? And I'll just let you do the math. That's not it, although that's a part of it. But it's more about knowing who it is you're talking about. So, God, I'm first. Live like that. Keep the path clear and build this relationship so much that when you speak of me, you're not misusing it. People know. In Acts, they talked about the apostles this way. These men have clearly been with Jesus. How do they know that? Because when they speak of the Lord, it's so familiar, it's so true, it's such a relational thing. And so uh, God says, I'm first, keep things at bay, build a relationship, know my name. Fourth, I took a lot of heat on this series, on the Sabbath. But God simply says to the Israelites, hey, and again, their context is important. They've been slaves. So 24-7, seven days a week, 365, they've been working. And so God speaks to them and says, hey, a new story, take a vacation. And this time when you stop, somebody won't kill you because you stopped, right? Very hard for rehab for Israelites. Stop working. God says, take a break. For them, every seven days, is what he says, very specific to them, every seven days, don't work. And don't make anybody you know work. Like, total peace and shalom in your relationship. Just stop. Shut the factory down. Amen. Just stop working. Right? Can I get an amen? Thank you. Uh, Now, the point of this is, he's first. I'm committed to living that way. I'm doing everything I can to keep things clear. But you know what? Sometimes stuff gets in. And the Sabbath becomes this, for them, this moment where they stop working because the work that we do with our hands can sometimes become idols. And so we just kind of stop and we refocus on number one. And so when God tells them to Sabbath, again, it's a vacation. I mean, Jesus said it this way. uh, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's like, this is a gift for you. Do it. And when you do it, let me be the source of your strength. Let me refill your life. So this is the idea. Now, the first four commands, you can sort of lump over here with like, this is about loving God right here. I mean, if you just had to encapsulate what it means to love God, you're not going to find too many more things. I mean, you can just attach anything you can come up with with these first four, and it's like, yeah, it all fits right here. This, This is the love God sort of piece. The next set really are kind of like a neighbor piece. Number five starts with the family. So we talked about family and how God says, this is remarkable, by the way, to the children, honor your parents. Do you know how much children mattered in the ancient Near East? Zero. They're on the same standing as slaves. And God gives them the keys to healthy families. I just just love how God always takes the second tier, the second chair, and says from the bottom up, change the story. And so honor your father and mother, which again, what we said over and over in the series was healthy, 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 healthy families. 
It's on, it's on the mind and the heart of God, right? Number six, like you do, don't kill. The Hebrew for this is never take a life. Never, never. But the idea is seeing every life is sacred. Like, the idea here is to wake up every day because there's going to be people that you don't like. There may even be people that you would say that you hate, which Jesus addressed. Do not say that. Don't get to a point where you hate your neighbor or even your enemy. In fact, he says what to your enemies? Love your enemies. Thank you, Jesus, for making that difficult. But don't take a life. Wake up every day, and the prayer is, God, I got to go to work. Of course, you know that. I just can't stand it. The people and her. He says, no, no, no. Go through life, seeing every single life as sacred. It's made in the image of God, right? Don't don't take a life. Uh, Seven. He says, don't ruin families through adultery. Don't get involved in other people's marriages. Just like he said at the very beginning, I want to make sure right here at the steps of the altar for the wedding, I want to make sure you and I are um, committed. There's no other one. There's no other man. There's no other woman that's going to get between you and me. Uh, Right here down the list in the 10, don't ruin people's marriages through adultery. And if you're married, don't let things in that could ruin that. Strong, we know this one. I mean, we don't even have to like, yeah, we know the damage this can do. Eight, so simple, but yet when you put this into every dimension of life, it's hard. Don't steal. Don't take things that aren't yours. So you can kind of take this section, and it's like this neighbor piece. You know, you've got your love God, and you've got your love neighbor piece. Now, after number nine comes number ten, which is, when you read it, it's like this, really? It doesn't feel the same. Like, because over here you've got, this is about loving God, and you've got this love your neighbor piece, and then uh, both of these sections involve things that I do. But look at number 10. Oh, number nine. <laughs> we missed number nine, didn't we? Don't lie. Okay, number 10. <laughs> Sorry. We'll edit that on the recording. Um, then God says to wrap the list up, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Guilty, guilty, guilty. We're all guilty. You walk in, you're like, man, 50 inches on the TV. Wow, right? Um, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his manny, his nanny. Thank you. His ox or donkey. So God's making a list here. And the list is significant, by the way. We'll just sort of back up. Don't cover your neighbor's home. Don't cover your neighbor's family, right? Don't cover his, uh, covet his uh, employees, his career, his, his means of, like he has the means to do that. Don't, don't covet that sort of like level of status where he can have a maid or a servant. His ox or his donkey, this is like both, these are tools, these are technology, this is farming, this is agricultural, this is like his career, and yet, there's also this donkey. This is his transportation, his car, his ride. Right? Don't, don't covet that. Things haven't changed, by the way, have they not? 
And then he says, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the word anything in the Hebrew is the word kol. And it's the same word that's mentioned in the word idols, the command about idols. Don't make anything an idol, anything in all creation. So we have this word reappearing here because any of these things can also become idols for us. But the command is interesting. You, don't, don't covet. Don't covet things that other people have. And it's like, you got the love God piece, things I do. You've got the neighbor piece, things that I do or don't do. And then you have this thing, which is all like in here. Like no one knows if you're doing this, right? No one. There might be symptoms, but most of us aren't like behavioral experts and we can't, we can't look at people's lives and go, they're coveting coffee. Like we don't know that. Um, or they're coveting my stuff. They're coveting my sofa. Like we're not going to know that. This can be done internally. Um, So just sort of look at that for a moment and uh, maybe translate that into your own world. Now the word covet is not a word that we ever use. Maybe, maybe it comes out like in church circles like I'm supposed to say covet. I covet your prayers. I covet your support. I covet your encouragement, maybe. But it's rare that we ever use it. But the word itself, the Hebrew word is this. Next slide. The word is chamad. Say the word chamad. Very good. You sound convinced. Um, Hebrew, the Hebrew language has fewer words, and so there's all these descriptors that get attached to them. But the word for covet begins with this craving. And this is simply when you want something, which is not bad, but it's just you crave. You know, you just kind of, you're in the mall, and you walk past the Mac store, and you're like, there's the table with the iPods. One day... I'm going to replace my 2010 iPod with that one right? when it goes on sale, which never happens. But you crave. You want it. Desire. And this is about passion, like, i got to have that. And you've got to have that because it's missing. And so there's this desire to have something. Um, the word delight this is so important. Um, when you delight in something, this is the daydreaming piece of what it means to covet. This is when you are sidetracked by the thought of having something that you don't have. A thing, a job, a certain kind of family, a possession. If I could just have that different life, maybe? Like, Nobody around me can connect with me because I'm just constantly somewhere else, consumed, long. You long for something. And this is like um, when you want something that you don't have because if you don't get it, then you are not, like, complete. If I don't have that, I'm, like, half the man or a third of the man or whatever. This is the you-complete-me garbage. I mean, this is like... If I can just have that relationship, that thing, that house, that career, that body, if I can just have that, then I long for that. The word pant, which we never use, uh, but the word pant is so connected to this. Notice the verse in Psalm 42, verse 1. The writer says, "Is the deer pants for streams of water. So the writer, also a shepherd, saying, here comes the deer, 
thirsty, dehydrated, wanting water. He pants for the water. He's got to have it or he'll die. And he flips that and says, that's how I feel about you, oh God. Now wanting is at the center of what it means to covet. And covet is this all-encompassing word that describes this overpowering passion to have something that's missing from my life. Now wanting, as I've already said, is not a bad thing. We should want good things. We should want healthy relationships, healthy families. We should want strong marriages. Like if we're married, we should want strong marriages. Uh, if you're in a career, you should want to feel uh, fulfilned and connected and have purpose and significance. You want, to, you want that. That's a good thing to want. Like uh, the neighborhoods you live in, you want them to be safe. You want that. Uh, these are good things to want, right? You want the poor in the world to raise up and rise up out of their situation. This is good to want. God actually calls us to want those things. Uh, spiritually, you should want to grow in your faith. You should want your faith not to stay here, but to continually grow. Like, that's something we should covet, really. We should want that, right? Uh, as a church, we have wants, right? We, there's things that we want. There are, in fact, four major things that we want here, and we talk about them often. Every Monday morning, we unfold these and say, are these things happening? We want to see God change people's lives. Like, we want to see that. We don't, we don't want to exist and not see that. And so we, we have this passion to see uh, people changed by the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. We, that's a passion of ours, that God renews the hearts of people. We have a passion uh, we want, and don't be afraid, we want every single one of you to be in some sort of community, some smaller group connecting with people where there's love and there's care and there's serving and you're serving and you're being served and you're praying for one another. We want that. We desperately want that. Uh, we, in fact, uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeffrey, who's leading worship with us now, we brought him on because Jamie, who had been leading that for almost six years, among staff conversations and prayer and development decided that it was better for him to come off the stage and to devote full-time attention to you and group life and community and put everything into that because we want that and we believe God wants us to want that. God does not want us to be a place where people fall through the cracks. He wants us to be a place of community and love and care. The city, we want to serve the city. We don't want to exist here and be blind to the city. We want to be a place that maybe sees resurrection take place in different parts of the city, and we think God wants us to want that. And in closing, uh, not for the sermon, but just this part, we want to give as much money as we can away to mission work, period. Uh, we just want to do that. We feel like God wants us to. So wanting is not a bad thing, and wanting the right things is not a bad thing. When you see this command, this is about wanting perhaps the wrong things, or you can see it this way, perhaps maybe wanting the right things in the wrong ways. Because none of those things are bad, like home, family, etc. They're good things. So God seems to be warning us through this command about wanting things in the wrong ways, maybe not so much in the right ways, but wanting the right things in the wrong ways, because we all know how that can work. 
Um, we've all had friends who started dating someone, and then that relationship became so important that every other relationship just went away. Right? It's a good thing, but something else happened to every other relationship. If you're a student, you want good grades, right? Amen? But that can become divine. Everything else around you can just get lost. Career. You want to, be, you want to move up in your career. Good. Go for it. It's a good thing. But you can make that into something that everything else just gets pushed aside. So maybe it's about wanting the right things in the right ways and not the right things in the wrong ways. Jesus uh, in Luke 12, this is a great little story. Uh, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So the story begins with tragedy because this only took place then when your dad died. You got the money in the estate when your dad died. This is what the prodigal son actually asked of his dad, which is quite a statement, saying, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. So we have these two brothers. Typically in this culture, the older brother got two-thirds of the estate. The younger brother got one-third. So this encounter with Jesus begins with tragedy. Hey, we can't come to a decision on who gets what because our dad died, and so here we are at the table, the negotiating table. So they come to Jesus, who is not a legal person. He's not, like, in the court system. He's not. So they come to him, and they say, tell my brother to, do, to divide the inheritance with me, which is a legal issue. So Jesus replies, man, or man. <laughs> really? That's kind of what he's saying. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? It's not my role. He says, then he said to them, and this is the key here, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, which you and I would assume, but then he kind of goes in for the low uh, blow here, saying, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his what? Possessions. This is the real issue. They come to him and say, hey, tell my brother to give me what belongs to me, and then he can have his, and we'll be all set. And Jesus says a couple of things. He raises a question about why are you coming to me, but since you're here, I'll teach you. Uh, everyone else thinks it's about about greed, but it's really about you or defining who you are by what you get. And so he's saying, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Now, how easy is that to do, right? How easy is it for us to look at all that we have and say, that's my life. That's the definition of my life. I mean, what's the second or third thing we always ask people when we meet them? What do you do? Because that matters to us. Right? And so Jesus says, just keep in mind that what you have does not define who you are. Maybe to the world, but not, not to God. And so the commandments end with number 10 saying, don't spend your days looking at everybody else's lives and wanting what they have because you don't have it. It's very interesting. And it's a constant thing that we have to struggle through. But the commandment's very, I mean, you know, very simple. Don't spend your days looking at the lives that other people are living and the things that they may have. And don't look at them wanting what they have because perhaps you think you don't have that. And then Jesus lays in kind of the, oh, and in case you're unclear, it, your life, at least according to God, is not defined by those things anyway. 
So coveting, always in the negative sense when Scripture talks about it, about wanting something that you don't have. And it might be the right thing, but it's wanting it in the wrong, wrong way. Uh, three years ago, uh, story, three years ago, our church was quite uncertain about our building. This bu- we don't own this building. If you're new with us, welcome, but we don't own this building. And, um, and over the years, though, we've done some work to it and renovated it and built a stage and, uh, well, you know, lots of stuff. Uh, mostly we fixed it, <laughs> just so you know. Um, but we don't own it. And three years ago, it was quite uncertain because in uh, 2006, actually, when we moved in, it was really just for like maybe six months, I think is what the, the, the contract was. Um, and even then, it was month to month. Like they could call us any day and go, get out. So uncertain from day one, but just kind of a little bit comfortable because we know we got six months. And so really all we did for, I mean, constantly was just look at other spaces. Um, so we were quite uncertain. Now the economy has enabled us to be here. This is, we're starting our um, uh, fifth year. So right on to that. Um, I mean, we call once a year. <laughs> Hello, we still good? Okay. Because they kind of forget we're here until they get our measly check. And they go, hey, look at there, Peachtree Road account. Okay. Do we still have that building? I did learn the other day, this is free stuff for you, but the guy who designed this building designed Linux Mall and the Woodruff Art Center. So we're in a pretty awesome spot. Of course, I don't know what happened here. But uh, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I'm thinking bomb shelter, gun turret, you know, Lord of the Rings, kind of like top of the hill. No guns in Lord of the Rings, but, you know, whatever. So, uh, but we didn't know. We didn't know. This window, you can't see this, but uh, this beam up here, you see this big beam? Well, behind it, it goes up, and there are windows all across, and they're big. Well, I came in uh, to work uh, one week, and there was like little pieces of glass on the floor, so I just kind of looked back here, and the first thing I thought of was Jeremy, our drummer at the time, like, it's going to fall and kill him. That's what I thought. And so we got together, and we went, well, uh, okay, so we'll, we'll call the landowner. So I called the landowner, and I said, um, this is the situation. Um, can you tell us what to do? Well, it was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Because this is a building they don't want to put money into. Because it's coming down one day, something big's going up. And uh, so we go back and forth on the phone. Well, she calls me back and she says, listen, um, I just talked to the property manager and owner and he just, he doesn't like it. He's upset about it. And he just thinks you guys should get out. This is like a, like a Friday. <laughs> uh, so, man, stress. That's the way it was all the time. And my first year here was just in and out of spaces all over the city, just looking like we can meet here. We were in schools, gyms, closed-down restaurants, bars, whatever. I mean, like other people's churches. <laughs> we were everywhere. I remember standing in the kitchen of a closed bar, now, I loved it. I was wanting this building. I mean, it was just cool. I was like, we could change the names of stuff, like kids meeting the wine cellar, uh, uh, <laughs> theology on tap, 
Um, I can say cheers from the stage every week. I mean, I had the whole thing in my head. Uh, so yeah, that's the way it was. We smiled through it. We prayed through it. But man, it was, I was worried all the time. All the time. Uh, we live just up the road. And when you come out of our building, right across the street, there's this old, beautiful Lutheran church. My son and I play baseball in their, their yard all the time. And um, they don't know that. But, but it's beautiful. Stone, and it's got like the red door. Do you guys know the church I'm talking about? It's got, I mean, it's just, every time we walk out onto the sidewalk, it's like that red door is just awesome. You know, it's just beautiful. And in fact, in those days uh, when we were uncertain, I uh, had actually contacted them about meeting in their space, like kind of an off time, like a Sunday night or something. Um, but I'd never been in there, only from the outside looking, you know, at it. Well, they do a, a live nativity every year, which is no good. It's um, Jesus is plastic. There's um, the camel is a miniature horse with a hump tied to the back. And uh, <laughs> Joseph uh, has a robe and he wears glasses, Nikes, and tennis shoes uh, and a watch. So anyway, but we go over here, we run across, we like dart the traffic and we run across. Well, this one year I took my son over there and I said, you, you go play with a horse, camel, and they have hot chocolate inside, so I, I used that as my chance to get inside and look around, so it was like recon. I was just like, ah, yeah, I like it, you know. Um, well, there was one night, a few years ago, I was walking back from the store, and it was dark, and they had left their lights on in the back building. They have this big back building, and they left their lights on. I was like, oh, I've never been in that building. So I walked down the street and up to the door. This is like a low point in my life. And I'm looking through the window. And I'm like, ah. I bet that water fountain works. Oh, they have a youth room. Their lights work. So I'm just standing there for like 10 minutes looking at this building and I'm saying in my head I wish I wish I wasn't in my situation I wish I was in their situation I wish I could just not worry about my situation I wish I was them and not me. I mean, never mind all the great things that God has done here. They have something I don't, and I want it, because I'm tired of looking, and I'm tired of wondering, and I'm tired of the phone calls, and I'm tired of the stress, and dang it, they've got a water fountain. Never mind that this church from day one has never been the sum of what it's had, but who she is. Never. It's always been about what God has done among us. In that moment, I was just like, I wish I was someone else. 
Now, as a youth minister, prior to this, for 15 years, I spent year after year after year after year after year strengthening kids and just basically telling them, look, you just, you have to be comfortable in who you are, and you have to be comfortable in your own skin, with your own stories, your own past, your own present. Like, you just, you've got to be comfortable in that because God has made you, and he loves you, and you're his workmanship, you're his art, you're his product, you're his creation, you're his image, his imago Dei, like you're his, like you just got to be comfortable in that. So when you go to school, when you go to college, when you graduate, at least walk into the dorm confident in who God has made you. I'm like, I taught that for 15 years, and here I am fighting back the words of David when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The rabbis say it this way. If you live the first nine, if God is at the front and you're doing everything you can to keep things away so that this relationship is strong and then when you talk about him, it's clear that it's real. I'm not just throwing out God and Jesus and the next worship band and the book I'm reading, but this is clearly a relationship. And when I speak, people say, clearly he's been with Jesus. If I'm living that, like God's at the front, things are pushed to the side, this thing is important, this thing is strong, I know his name, right? I'm finding rest in him through Sabbath. He refills me, he uh, strengthens me. When I stop, doing all the things that I do, like when I just kind of take my hands off the things that give me significance and go, you are really the significance here because you're creator of all things and you've called me into a relationship with you and bam, here we are. You're the most important thing to me. So I'm doing everything I can just to kick things to the side, keep this strong. And in that, there's rest, there's Sabbath, there's refueling, there's all this kind of like restoration. And in the midst of that, I'm learning to love God. And then... uh, if I am doing my best to kind of strengthen who my family is, like, again, from the kids, from the bottom up for, you know, wow, just like, kids, you do it. You change the story. Honor your parents. And so if I'm doing that, if I'm living that, which is the first command, not just with a promise, but it's also the first command that deals with people. So my first command from God that has to do with my relationships with the world, not him, the world has to do with family. So here we go. Neighbor begins right there at home. And then it's like, see, every life is sacred. Like, if I'm doing that, like, if I'm seeing every single one of you as, like, okay, you're one of his creations, even if I uh, have trouble with you, you don't like me, there's hatred, tension, ah, doesn't, I see everything as sacred, like, if I'm doing that, if I'm protecting not just my own marriage, but others by not, like, getting in there, and, like, the adultery command is, like, coming true, like, it's, like, just don't ruin families, if I'm not taking things that don't belong to me at whatever level, in every dimension of life, like I'm just this person of integrity, like, no, that paperclip belongs to you, sorry. And so I'm just living that kind of, like, minutia, like I'm working hard for that. So, and then there's this, like, the ninth command about, like, don't, don't give false testimony, don't lie. And the New Testament says, speak truth in love. So it's God here. Everything is aimed there. This relationship is strengthening. It's affecting all my earthly relationships. 
So I'm learning how to love God here, and I've got this whole neighbor thing happening here with all those other commands. Number 10, the rabbis say, if you get the first nine, you won't want someone else's life. If this is what matters in these earthly relationships I'm tending to in a way that God has called me, if I live the first nine, they say, number ten is like a free pass. You don't need it. You don't want it. Because my identity is not found in gaining your stuff. Because my identity is found in this, in God. Paul says it this way in Galatians. Powerful statement. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So you have this picture of, ah, when you come into this relationship with Christ through baptism, you put on this whole new identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all, what's the word? One in Christ Jesus. These are all, in the ancient world, these are all divisions. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Paul says all of that in Christ, gone. Uh, Peter Rollins says it this way, crazy Irish theologian, but he says this, Life is about sort of gaining identity, like we join groups to get identity, like clubs, fraternities, colleges, homeowners associations, teams, even churches, right? We do this, and it gives us identity. But the problem is, one of the main undercurrents of Christianity is that I lose my identity. That all these identifiers, they go away. And what people see when they see me and hear me and they're around me is that they, they see Christ working in me. So identity is not found in other people's things or in other people's lives. If I can get all these things down, then the product is a freedom from wanting what you have and what I don't have. I won't want somebody else's life. I don't need your, your car, your home, uh, I don't need your job. I don't need your reputation. I don't need your kids. Maybe your kids sometimes. I don't need your kids. I don't need what's in your garage. I don't need your influence. I don't need uh, your friends. I don't need your body. I don't need your hair. I don't need anything that you have. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need your church. I don't need your lobby. Because my identity is there, not there. Does this make sense? If I can focus everything I have, really, number 10 is really about number one. It's beautiful how that works. God is one. No other God's before me. If I can just get that and all those little echelon things falling beneath it, this one is really saying the same thing. I don't need anything but him. 
So I'm learning to love God, the first four, and then uh, the next set, love neighbor, and then number 10 becomes kind of this as yourself. Learning to be content with who you are in Him and loving the world in that way. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you with me? The next two weeks are good. Don't miss it. And my prayer for you is as it was for first service, that you leave at least with the decision to look at every day as a gift from God. You have the life that you have, and you may want good things and better things, and that's fine, but you don't need someone else's life. And never find yourself saying, I wish I was someone else. Amen? Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. we got two songs to sing, so stick around. Um, yeah. And stay engaged, because, man, um, in prayer before service, I, I just said to the team, I just said, man, the words of all of these songs that you all picked today, boom, just right there. And um, so as a, as a church, together, as we sing the next couple songs, just let them be your prayer. And, um, and let them fill you with encouragement. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, who we are in you, and that's such a difficult thing. It's a, it's a lifetime journey to just keep remembering that you uh, are first and to realign all of our uh, passions and desires and relationships around that is just constantly difficult. It's just continually a struggle. But God, teach us to find through the years that we grow in this, not diminish, but we grow in our comfort in you and our identity in you and that when, um, when we're presented with, wow, everybody else has a better life, that that, that, that that junk just goes away. And it's never about what I don't have but it's about you and your love and your grace and your mercy coming alive in me. And my assumption is, Father, that everyone in this room has struggled with someone else's house and someone else's car and someone else's career, someone else's family. But we are who you have made us and we are not the sum of what other people have. But God, we find everything we need in you at the cross where you came and died, saying to the world, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that means rest from all of this stuff. It pulls at us and pulls us away from you. So Father, as we sing the words of these next songs that you will just, in this room, it, through your spirit, just encourage us. We love you, and we stand here as broken people in need of you. And it's in your name that we pray.
Amen.